Let me do a little bit of trivia to wake you up a little bit as we get started. Which of the following states was once property of Russia? Hawaii, California, Washington, Minnesota, Alaska, Florida, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Ah, it was Alaska. You guys are so smart. Here we go. When did a gallon of gas cost an average of $1.51? It was one of those years. 2000? You are right. It was the year 2000. And on top of that, let me give you the prices of what it averaged back in those days. Do you remember when it was 36 cents a gallon? Yeah? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, that's been a long time ago, isn't it? Okay. Here we go. Since 2000, has the percentage of the teens in America who work in the summer increased or decreased? Not the actual number, but the percent of the teens that, do, that, that there are. Has it gone up, teens getting summer jobs, or gone down? It is down. Okay, let's talk about seniors. Same thing. Since 2000, those who are over 65, has the percentage of that, in that age group gone up or gone down? That has had a drastic increase, okay? We were talking about Labor Day being the weekend and talking about a lot of these different things with jobs and all. So most Americans work in what sector of the workforce? Is it agriculture, education, health, business, retail, manufacturing, government, or service? It's not health. Yeah, it's not retail. It's the service industry, which would be your, your, uh, your restaurants, things of that kind of thing. Uh, let's do this. Which of the following is ranked as typically the highest paying job? Now, I understand, you know, just to put it this, we're talking those, all of those in this one field, not just one or two. But generally speaking, this career point, uh, if you head this way, you are guaranteed probably a high paying job. What do you think it is? It's not the president. Professional athlete, it's not, because some are real high, but no. What's that? No, it's the preacher. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. Number one and number two in America, cardiologist and radiologist. Uh, here we go. What is the deadliest job in America, taking the percent of number of people in that who have died in the job? Crabbing. No. Firefighter, no. Nuclear maintenance, no. Mining, no. Police officer, no. No, not a truck driver. The president is considered the most dangerous, deadliest job because four out of the 45 have been killed in office because of their office. So one out of every 10 who's been involved has been because of the office, and that's the highest statistic. Uh, here we go. What color of clothing used to be put away after the at the end, after, put away for the year after Labor Day weekend? It was white. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are so smart. What percent of the world's population will die within a seven-year period? Future seven-year period that the Bible talks about and gives percentages. During that seven-year, which, by the way, what's that seven-year period called? Tribulation. What percentage of the world's population will die of those who enter into that time period? Yeah, you're pretty close. In, the, in Revelation 6, it says in the first three and a half years, one out of every four will die in a three and a half year period. Then it talks about of those remaining, another third, so you put it together, you have 50%. One out of every two who begin to live in that, who are alive and on planet Earth at that point, one out of two people on planet Earth will die in a seven year period. No wonder Christ calls it the worst time in human history. We're going to talk about that period and a number of other times uh, that's talked about in scriptures over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about a basic general idea of uh, the end times, the doctrinal, the doctrine of eschatology, it's called, the last things. And we're, so we're going to give just an overview. Now, we've done the book of Revelation a couple of years ago. We've done a variety of different texts. But we're just going to do an overview and try to answer. And the one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to do a lot of the speculation. Do I believe that Donald Trump is Antichrist? I'm not going to get into those, those speculations, okay? But we'll make some observations, but we want to stick as close as possible to Scripture and talk about it. So here's where we want to start as we talk about the end times. We want to remember there's a statement that says that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, okay? Well, we could be learning from history future, 
to avoid repeating some mistakes of time past. And that's what we want to do. And so as we're talking about it, we want to just kind of ask this question. Do you think a lot of people are interested? A lot of people talk about the end times or have any kind of inkling about end times. And a survey was done recently uh, with some Americans, and this is church going, non-church going. And there was a general survey that was done, and they asked how many believe that Jesus will return someday, including those who don't even believe in going to church or anything if they don't even believe the Bible is true, but what percent do you think it's at, that Americans said Jesus will come back someday? Okay, 67%. That's a big number of people who will acknowledge Christ in some way. Believe that there's an antichrist someday. Okay, that's not as high. That's right around 50%. Believe that God will put an end to history and to human society as we know it, 44%. That's interesting that they believe that God is going to end things at one time, which would obviously indicate that they think they have to give an account to God. Okay? Say that God-induced will occur within the next few days. Well, that drops drastically. Okay, 20%. But the point is, people think about, people talk about, there is some conversation, there's a little bit of a basis that you could use in conversation to be able to share the gospel and be able to share your faith. And yet there's a lot of confusion about the end times, and that isn't helped by Hollywood, is it? Okay, and a lot of what's on the media as far as confusion. So we want to make sure that we don't uh, have confusion in our own minds. We understand. So here's what we want to do. Let's just lay out some, some basic premises as we do this study that we need to keep in mind as we go through the whole thing. Instead of jumping right in and talking about the schedule of events and the chart of events, let's just talk about some basic Bible truth first of all. God knows all that will happen. We need to start there because how are we going to find out about the future? Where do we look to find about the future. Are there a lot of people out there who claim that they can tell you the future? Sure, sure. In fact, right on the other side of town, if you drive through the town, there's, um, there's a big advertisement, Random 422, for somebody that will read your palm and will do tarot card readings to tell you your future. And so there's a lot of people out there that talk about knowing the future, and uh, there's a lot of programs on TV. There's a lot of internet information about people who claim to know the future. And we want to have this premise, this thought, that we believe and know and are confident in our heart God knows the future. In fact, if we go through and study just... And without, without elaborating this, because this is where your faith is, and that, that's why you're here, is you believe it already. But great is our God, and of great power, His understanding is beyond measure. It is infinite. He knows all things. In fact, Jesus, in Matthew 24, 25, spent in that, in that uh, discourse that He's doing in the very last few days of His life, He gives a lot of prophetic information in that section of Scriptures, talking about what's going to happen to Israel. That's the passage that talks about the ten virgins. That talks about the idea that, uh, uh, you know, there's coming a day when all of a sudden those are two are grinding and one will be taken. And uh, there's a variety of different comments that he makes, including that he's coming back in power and great glory. In Revelation, the, in, the whole major portion of the book, chapter 6 through 19, is prophetic. He gives a lot, God gives John a lot of details of what's happening to the world as a whole. He talks about Israel. He talks about this great Babylon, the whore. He talks about about the nations around the world. Then we know this in Psalm 139, it talks about that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, and that God knows everything, where I sit, where I rise, uh, in what direction I go. God knows each of our futures. Now that's a profound thought, that God knows everything, which brings us to this thought, this, let's add it, let's put an exclamation point to it. God doesn't have to count the hair on my head. It changes so drastically anyway. And I'm not the only one, right? Okay. Our hairs change throughout the day. And God, it doesn't say he counts the hairs of the head. He knows the very hair on our head. The idea is that God knows everything. And that's that illustration that Jesus used is just to highlight that God knows the most minutiae details and he is intuitive in all of his understanding. You and I, we have to learn. And even when we learn something, how much of it do we forget? We had the opportunity, as some of us have shared, over, over our time away, we stopped at the Creation Museum and the Ark. And those of you who have been there recently, there is so much information. You get so many good, good aspects, but how much of it did you forget after you walked out the door? It's just, yeah, there's just, an, there's just so much. God doesn't, doesn't have to learn, doesn't have to read, doesn't have to have somebody present. He just knows. That's an amazing thought about our God. Now, here's something that I want to add to it, and I want to clarify with it, that God knows everything he chooses to know. 
Let's, let's put it this way. God knows everything that he chooses to know. That's why we can say, and if we say it this way, that's why Jesus, as God, could still learn. He chose to put himself in a spot that he would have to do some learning and understanding. That's why God remembers our sins no more. He chooses to not bring them up. He chooses to put them away out of his mind. And so our God is an amazing person just an amazing ability that he knows all the realities and he knows all the possibilities. He knows what your life would have turned out if you had made some major decision a little bit different about a career or about a purchase like a home or something that really has impact. God knows everything and all the possibilities. He's amazing. God has chosen to reveal a lot about future events. He knows it and he has chosen to reveal a lot of the information about it. How much of the Bible, and this is where he reveals it, how much of it is prophetic? Here's just some statistical information that some have put together that talk about how much of our Bible talks about prophecy and future events that some say that 27% of the Bible is prophetic. There's a lot of history, there's a lot of poetry, there's a lot of uh, details about the life of Christ, but the actual prophetic passages, that is over 25% of the Bible, 28 some percent of the Old Testament and 23% of the new combined because the Old Testament is a far bigger segment by comparison that you end up with that 27%. All the books of the Bible have prophecy except for four books in the Bible. There are four. Do you know which ones they are? They don't make any prophetic statement. Okay, no. No. Here's your four. Ruth, Song of Solomon, Philemon, and Third John that they don't make a specific prophecy. All the others have something, which means that 62 out of the 60 books have something prophetic. Now, we're not saying that they're all future to us, but for the time that they were written, there was something prophetic, that they made some type of, some type of statement future to themselves or recorded it in some way, shape, or form. We go a little bit further and we say, okay, which of the books in the Bible contain prophecy that is still yet to be fulfilled? Now, some have, have done the study and they say, here are in the books uh, of the Bible that still, there is still unfulfilled prophecy that needs to be fulfilled with the coming of Christ, with the tribulation, with the establishment of the kingdom. And then on top of that, you have certain books that are just overflowing that their design was pure prophecy, such as the book of, okay, Daniel's going to be there. Which book is most prophetic? Okay, yeah, and so you have all these different books that give us a lot of prophetic information still future to us. And so there's a lot of information in the Bible that God has revealed, but we want to make this statement. We know that what the future holds only as we know it only as far as God has chosen to reveal it. The reason I'm saying this is I want to make sure that we are understanding as we go through this whole study that God has not chosen to reveal everything. Okay. That's, that frustrates us, but God has chosen not to reveal everything. At times when I hear individuals do a prophecy conference or prophecy seminars, it's as if God revealed to them absolutely every detail. You know, is the presentation sometimes. God has chosen not to reveal a lot of information. Are there a lot of questions you have about the future that you say, we just can't know? Um, such as, what age will we be in heaven? We don't know, okay? Um, what's the United States' role in, in the tribulation period? The specific reality is we don't know, okay? Um, what, you know, exactly, exactly when is Jesus Christ returning for the rapture? We don't know, Okay? Uh, here's the one that amazes me, is it see, says time and time again, of the day and of the hour, we don't, no man knows, no man knows, and that's referring to the second coming. And yet, with that in mind, he gives 1,260 days, 1,260 days, and you know, the first half, the second half of the tribulation, then Jesus comes back, and even though we get some specific numbers, he says we still don't know the exact date, which indicates we don't know exactly when God starts that timetable of those 1260 days. There are some real specifics in minutiae that we don't know. 
and we ought not to pretend that we know, God has chosen not to reveal. Like in, in Matthew 25, this is the statement in 25, 13 that he says, watch therefore no man knows the day and the hour of the return of the Son of Man. And that is referring to the second coming that is not a rapture passage. That is a passage of his second coming. We, um, we read in 2 Corinthians 12, and I'm going to refer to it. I debated whether to do it now or in the morning service. So we'll do it in the morning service. 2 Corinthians 12, it talks about what heaven is like that the man died, went to heaven, and he saw things about heaven, but it says that there was things that he saw that were unspeakable, is what the King James says, and he was not permitted to tell. In other words, God doesn't reveal every aspect of heaven to us in every detail. We read, in, um, we read in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Does anybody remember this phrase? It starts off with secret things. Secret things belong to the Lord. Okay, and we often, we, we preachers often use that passage when we say we just don't know secret things belong to the Lord. And we kind of use it all encompassing. In, in, in exact context, he is making this statement, secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed belong to us. He's talking about prophecy. He's saying that some things have not been revealed, but what has been revealed, we are responsible for. We are to deal with. We are supposed to be aware of. And so the fact is, God has not chosen to reveal everything. And we need to, when we study, uh, come to a study of end times, we need to understand we can only study with certainty that which he has revealed. We are on dangerous grounds when we say, well, this is the way it's going to happen, and the Bible hasn't revealed it. Now, we might guess, we might surmise, if it were to happen, you know, um, if it were to happen within our, our immediate lifetime, do we understand how they could possibly put a mark on the, on the hand right now? Does that make sense now with, with um, what do we want, technology the way we have it? Could we understand how they could do it now? Yeah, okay. And I don't think that's wrong to say if it were to happen, this how they could happen in this daytime, which makes it more of a reality than generations ago. And we see that, but to say that's the way it's going to be. We, we can't say that. There's a difference. And so we can, with what we know, we can make some surmisings, but that's the best. God set up certain criteria by which we can tell, is someone giving us legitimate information or not? This is an important thought when we study end times because we hear a lot of details. Oh, well, let, let's rephrase this. Let, let's do this for fun. Let's take ourselves back to the year uh, 55 AD. 55 AD, we're sitting in the church of, pick one of them. What's that? Antioch. We're sitting in the church of Antioch, okay? And it's 55. And there's preachers coming along. And the preachers come along, and as they come through, and Paul and Barnabas have taught us a lot of the truth, but these others come through, and they get up, and they speak. And sometimes, during this time, there are some who give prophecy. It was a gift that was still functioning at that time, according to 1 Corinthians 13. The whole Bible had yet to be written, so they could get up, and they could give prophecy. How do we know who is standing here and giving us real and accurate prophecy and who is having a dream because he ate some foreign pizza? How do we know? What is the criteria? Oh, if it sounds good. That couldn't be our criteria. Okay. Um, if the person is dynamic. No, we can't do that. Okay. Um, you know, uh, if it sounds good to me, the prophecy favors me. Oh, that we definitely can't go by. Okay, so God has established in the Old Testament and New Testament, he established criteria that was really important for individuals who, when their contemporary society, when church life, when they were still hearing ongoing prophecy, oh, and by the way, do some claim today that they can give prophecy? Okay, so let's do the criteria.
Let's grab the criteria and say, okay, this is important. That if somebody comes along and claims, which by the way, we also know that if they're claiming revelation, they violate 1 Corinthians 13 already. But let's look and say, okay, what was God's criteria to evaluate this person or this person or this person or this person to see if they were telling the truth and whether they were telling accurate information. And so this was the, this is the point. Are they legitimate spokesmen from God? Okay, because there are many who claim they're from God, yes? Okay, and that's, I mean, are there still people claiming they're from God? Yeah, for all different groups, and they have spiritual insight, and whether they're telling the truth or not, okay? And we still have this today. We have some who claim to be apostles. We have some today who claim that they are speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ, and some who very, very likely could be born again. They could be brothers and sisters in Christ, but they claim that they have visions and dreams. So how do we know what's accurate here? Here's what God had told them in the Old Testament. Jump to this passage. In Deuteronomy, just to lay a foundation, this was already in the Old Testament, and this, this is very specific statements that were, that were clear to the Jews that laid a foundation that we could apply in the sense of evaluating. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams who gives you a sign or a wonder. I'm in Deuteronomy 13 verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. The sign or the wonder which comes to pass whereof he spake of, uh, unto you saying, let us go after other gods. Interesting. He acknowledges that there's a possibility they may say some type of sign or they may say make some type of prediction and it might come to pass. That's important. Okay? That he's acknowledging there's a possibility that there could be deception even in the miraculous world in the signs and wonders but here's the key that he gave them. Okay? The sign or the wonder comes to pass wherever he spake unto you saying let us go after other gods, okay, which you have not known, and let us serve him. You shall not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proves you to know whether you love him. So he is saying there is a possibility some could have dreams. There is a possibility some could have visions. But who are they promoting? First criteria, they've got to be promoting Jehovah God. Now, you and I don't struggle with that as much, but in, in Old Testament era, was that important to the Jews? and especially at the time of Moses, because they were basically, for that first part of the Old Testament, they were, and it shouldn't have been this way, but they were basically doing auditions as to who was going to be the God they were serving. Correct? They had a, they had a multiplicity of gods that they had heard about from Egyptians, from the, uh, from the Canaanites. And so he's saying they've got to be speaking about Jehovah and Jehovah worship only. He gives another criteria in just a couple chapters later, <clears throat> which in chapter 18, this is an interesting criteria that he gives. Chapter 18, down in verse 10. Chapter 18, verse 10. Jump over there. Look what he says. Um, there shall not be found any among you that makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire or that uses divination or an observer of times, an enchanter, a witch, a charmer, a consulter with familiar spirits, a wizard, or a necromancer. For all these things are, are all who do these things are a what? An abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord thy God has driven them from out of you. You shall be perfect. Again, he is saying there's a possibility of people being involved in giving some, some special um, signs, wonders, people giving some visions, dreamers of dreams, you know, revealing the truth, uh, I mean, revealing, uh, yeah, revealing the future. He says, but if they don't promote godly worship, if they engage in ungodly worship. Give you another criteria he gave to Jews, verses 20 and 21 in the same text, where he makes this comment, the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even he shall die. Uh, how shall we know the word of truth when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord if the thing follow not nor come to pass? So everything they say, everything they predict, it has to be 100% of the time. Now here's, here's the catch, okay? That, that's, in a, that's obviously within this text. How, will they, how quickly will they know that this guy is speaking the truth? They don't know. Could they, could they keep this guy you know, in a probationary period for a long time to see if what he predicted? That's the implication of the passage. It wasn't always immediate. 
So there could be that somebody you're that's around, but you aren't giving him the credibility until you see for a period of time. Which, by the way, were the Jews totally wrong in trying to evaluate whether Jesus was from God or not? Would this, would this require they have to examine him? Yes. So in the sense that the Sadducees sent people to examine Christ, was that a legitimate a legitimate purpose of sending the individuals to look at Jesus. It would, it would coincide with the Old Testament, that they should look to see who is he. But, but did he fulfill all of their, did he, did he complete all of their examinations? Yeah, in all their criteria, that was the problem. And so we have another statement in Galatians chapter 1. This one you know in the New Testament. Paul is writing in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, and he's talking to the Galatians who are listening to a variety of other people coming through, and he says to them, um, he says, if any others come and preach, he says, even if I come back again, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that which you have, we have preached unto you already, let him be accursed or anathema okay and so he makes it very clear we're supposed to try the spirits and those who come through and the point is they have to agree with other scriptures the scriptures is the criteria that has been revealed over the ages now by new testament standards are what they teaching what they promoting even though they come and they may claim to have vision they may claim to have dream they may claim to have some information additional information do what they're saying, what they're promoting, what they're preaching, does it agree with the rest of the scriptures? Because God is not inconsistent. Then as well, Hebrews chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 12, he does say he confirmed many of the apostles with signs and wonders. Okay, so there, there could be some of that, and I remind you again, they could be falsified. So it's not just this and this is alone the only criteria. There's all these criteria, but this one was added. There, there, there were cases in, in the Bible where people could do miracles. People could do um, prophetic things. Do you remember any? Moses in his contest with Janis and Jambres, if that was the two, that, um, that had that contest with, with Pharaoh's magicians. Any others? Well, you go through Matthew chapter 27. Jesus says, even in the last days, some will say these comments, have not we prophesied, cast out demons, done many wonderful works, but I will say to them, I never knew you. Okay, so there's that possibility that he's saying that the signs were, were a, the sign gifts were a sign that they were coming from God. But if that's the only criteria God had established, that was a problem. He had established multiple other criteria as well. Okay? And so the Jews asking Jesus, what is a sign? Great. That wasn't wrong. But the wrong was when he gave it to them and they still said, well, give us a sign. Give us a sign. And they, you know, were you preaching according to the word of God? And he did. And all these other. Now, there's a couple more criteria that's very important. In all of these texts, the criteria is they have to live godly lives. And in the text, especially Jude chapter 4 through 19, if you look at that text in length in Jude, he's talking about the false teachers and one of the characteristics and how they are like the, uh, the clouds without water, how they are coming through, you know, the trees without producing fruit. And these are coming through and they are money mongers. They are uh, sexually impure. They are corrupt and lording over the people. And he gives several of those characteristics that it's, this is just not godliness. That they are, that they are uh, dangerous individuals is basically what he's calling them. And so in the, all these texts we have the idea that there's got to be godliness that matches the messenger, the messenger from God. And so we can add one other thing, okay? And that is they have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that we've talked about in Matthew 27, we just read the text briefly up here, that is the idea that, that do they know Jesus Christ when he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And by the way, in that context of that passage, he has already said, know them by their fruit, know them by their fruit, know them by their fruit, and this is what's going to happen to those who don't bear the real fruit, all those criteria. So we have all that listed out. Let's do number five. We are expected... We are expected to study what the Bible has revealed about future events. Okay. Um, I've heard people say over the years that they, I don't like studying future events. It scares me. Okay. Um, that's, that's, I understand that. 
Well, I don't like studying future events because it doesn't deal with my life right now. Now, that is an erroneous statement by Scripture. Does the future impact how we do work now? It really does. It really does. And Jesus really explains that, as we'll see in the next few minutes. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, since there's so much, we said that approximately 28% of the Bible is filled with prophecy, and we're, we're commanded to study all Scriptures. Study, you know, study the Word of God, study the Scriptures, um, that you may <clears throat> study to show thyself approved unto God, that you may rightly divide the Word of truth. So we have to study it, even the prophetic passages. In Hebrews 6, there's an interesting phrase. If you're close by to Hebrews, that I think some of us have overlooked over the years. Hebrews 6, there's a reference to future events that is very, very, very important. You want to grab it? Hebrews 6, verse 1 and 2. Hebrews 6. Watch what he says about future events. And, um, and, and this is really, really an interesting thought that he gives, well, all the Bible is, but this, he's just given a lot of information in Hebrews 5 and talked about our great high priest. Look at verse 1 of Hebrews 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... Okay, the idea is we've just talked about Jesus Christ, that he is not higher than the angels, he is better than the prophets, he is better than Moses, he is better than Melchizedek, he is the one who is serving on our behalf and given his life, he's the great high priest, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection or to bigger things or into more maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from works and of faith toward God. What's he mean by that? He is saying that there are some basic foundational do uh, doctrines that we need to study. Okay, when you got saved, what was the foundational doctrine you needed to know? You needed to know Jesus was God. You needed to know what else? That you're a sinner before a holy God. What else might you have needed to know? That Jesus died, buried, and... Okay, that's a basic doctrine. That you have to understand that to be born again. Okay? That basic, that, that's basic. What basic doctrine comes right after in the New Testament? What basic doctrine did they teach people right after they got saved? Baptism. Baptism was a basic doctrine that was taught right after they got saved. Okay? And so there are some basic doctrines that we teach. Uh, probably another basic doctrine that people had to learn about quickly was church because they needed that fellowship. Okay, look at what he describes as some of the basic doctrines. This is the Word of God. Okay, Repentance from dead works. Okay, we understand. Faith toward God, we understand that. The doctrine of baptism, we understand that. The practice of the laying on of hands, we understand that that was very common in the New Testament as they were giving out who has gifts, who doesn't. And of what else? What's a basic doctrine? And future events. Two of the future events that were very, very important that he said were very basic was the resurrection of the dead and the judgment. Why would he say that that was the basic doctrine that many of the New Testament believers studied right away? Can I suggest this? Okay. What happened to the believers in the book of Acts and then it, it kept on going as the epistles were written? What were they experiencing early in church history? Persecution. Okay. What happened to their relatives? They were, they were dying. Your relatives are being killed for Christ. What would you want to know? Where are they? What's going to happen to those dead relatives? Did they believe in vain? Can I, can I remind you? That is what he's writing about in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the resurrection of the dead. He's answering their question in 1 Thessalonians. They're wondering, many of the believers are saying, we believe that Jesus Christ is coming again, but our parents, our friends, were just killed. When Jesus Christ comes to take us away, what would you want to know? What happens to them? And that's when he explains with the rapture passage. Remember he says, your loved ones, is where he starts out that whole text, that when Jesus Christ returns, then the dead in Christ will rise first, then we which are alive shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, in the air. Their concern was what's going on with our loved ones. 
Did they miss the resurrection? Did they, did they lose out by dying prematurely? Because when did they expect Jesus to come back? Right away. When did the apostles, when did they expect Jesus to set up his kingdom? Immediately. Immediately. They expected everything to happen right away. And then all of a sudden time was going by and people were dying off. And they're wondering, so do you understand why they made it a, why he can call it, it's a basic doctrine that they needed to discuss right away? Okay? That he's telling these people because it was so important. And why would, why would he talk about eternal judgment? How would that affect people? I mean, you and me, knowing that there's eternal judgment, how does that affect us in relationship to other people? The witnessing factor. What motivates us? Do you remember what he says? Knowing therefore the blank of the Lord, we persuade men. The terror of the Lord. Okay, so those are basic doctrines. My point is this. My point is, according to the New Testament, this isn't a doctrine that is left for only the highly trained believer. This is a doctrine that God intended for how many believers? All believers, and how quickly? Pretty soon in their Christian life. Pretty early. This is a foundational doctrine that should be in the life of most, most believers. So therefore, that not only says that we're expected to study it, but we're able to study it. We're able to study this, rightly divide the word of truth, okay? We, we're, we're competent. You are able. This is, this is not a doctrine that is beyond you. And don't let, don't let somebody suggest that to you that, well, you don't know. It's a foundational doctrine. It's, it's, an, it's information in the scriptures that you can study, you can comprehend, and yes, are there things about the end times that we go, I just don't know. And is it, a, is it a very hard doctrine to study? Yes, no? It really is. It's one of the harder ones to study. We'll share why in a moment. Is the book of Revelation the easiest passage to interpret? No, no. It's difficult, but you are able to and you're expected to be able to study these passages. In fact, here's, here's some help for you and me. Um, Daniel is giving prophecy. He's told to seal up the book Okay, until the time of the ends. And then he talks about in a little bit further that there will be an expansion of knowledge in the time of the ends. What is interesting is Revelation says that same thing about sealing up. But this time, John is told, don't seal it up. Why? Why was Daniel to seal up or just to kind of put this, put this, uh, you know, this future, a lot of this future stuff, just kind of write it down, hold on to it, but just hold on to it for now. And then John, you know, you know hundreds, of, hundreds of years later, say, okay, now you can better understand it. Because a lot of that information is starting to be fulfilled. In fact, he's telling John, at the end of the book of Revelation, keep the sayings. You're able to understand them. You're able to, to be impacted by it. Don't put away the book of Revelation and say, oh, well, let's leave it until Nostradamus explains it to us. Let's leave it until the year 2050. That's, that's not true. That's not true. He's saying, okay, now we're getting into that time period where some of this will make sense. Well, you and I understand that because we're way beyond them. Daniel was, in that time that Daniel's writing, he's predicting such things as um, the Babylonian people. Oh, he lived during that time period. He's living, he's talking about the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, he saw the beginning of that. But he predicted another two empires, Greece. That was still future to him. And then which one? Rome, the Roman Empire. And then there's that two phases of the Roman Empire. And so Daniel didn't understand all that and his contemporaries because they weren't seeing it unfold. It would be more confusing. Does it make a lot more sense to you and me? Because we can see how it's unfolding. Does, does the ten-nation confederacy, the possibility of it, make a whole lot more sense to us today than people 250 years ago? Does it make a whole lot more sense to us? Now, let's, let's take the key, the key historical events of recent time. 1948. What happened? Israel became a nation. Okay? And so a lot of the prophecy revolves around Israel as a nation. Okay? A lot of the future events. Does it make a whole lot more sense about how these can work out today than it did in 1850? when there was no Israel nation? And where were the Jewish people at that time? 
scattered throughout the world. So, it, so we're living in a day that it is probably the best and ripest times to be studying end times. It's the most, it's, it's studying the Bible and laying it next to the newspaper. Oh, well, you don't have newspapers. Take that back. Okay. Okay. Studying the Bible and laying it next to current events. Can we see a whole lot more of how things might play out and make sense? And so, the, the, you know, we, the, the symbolism, the allegories of the book of Revelation, do they make a whole lot more sense to us than to our brothers and sisters 300 years ago? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are in an advantageous spot. Now, here's the question. What makes it so hard to interpret prophecy? Let's, let's be frank. Let's be honest. Our, we have the ability and we're supposed to study prophecy, but why is it hard for you and me to study it? Timelines, what do you mean by that? Okay, we don't know. We don't have all. He didn't give us this year, this year, this year, this year. Okay, we don't have that. If, if you're taking and you're saying, I'm starting from scratch, and I'm going to study prophecy in the Bible, what might make it difficult beyond that? Why do you say that? Mm-hmm. Okay, figure of speech. Let's, let's, let's talk about how that has been. Um, back in the 1970s when I first got saved, 1973, 74, 75, uh, there was pamphlets out that, that talks about they have the metal breastplates Right, you're talking that Revelation 9, I think, 11, that they have the uh, long hair, um, metal breastplates, screaming noise. Guess what some interpreted that as in, out of the 60s and 70s? Rock and roll bands, okay, heavy metal. There was, there's pamphlets out, don't you remember this? There's pamphlets out that this describes the modern rock and roll scene. The, the metal breastplates were their guitars, yeah. The guitars, the long hair, and the screaming noise. That much we understand, okay? <laughs> okay. And since then, some have said, well, that's um, interballistic missiles, things that are coming, helicopters. I mean, isn't that, did any of you see Sight and Sounds, Daniel? Yes, no? Okay, was that the helicopters flying around overhead? Is, am, I, am I thinking the wrong? I don't think they were with Samson. Okay, um, that they had that kind of stuff. There was an interpretation of it. So we have this. We we do have some similes and and allegories that are that are specifically stated. And makes it difficult. Any, which book are you going to turn to to study end times to get it all under uh, one one page? Where in the Bible is the section called future prophecy? What did you say? Everywhere. Everywhere. It's not identified in the Bible. And at times when he's doing it, let, let's lay, make this our Bible. It's all 66 books. Okay, so he talks about the second coming of Christ here and setting up a beautiful kingdom. And then another prophet further on talks about he's coming and he's going to die. And you go, what? If you're just looking. And then he's talking about there's going to be an antichrist and then he's talking about there's going to be a rapture. Even when he puts future events, he doesn't put them in a chronological order. Do you, know, do you follow what I mean? God interspersed the passages at different spots. That's hard because you and I, how are we geared to read something? Yeah, we start where? Yeah, and we go from the beginning to the end, and we expect it all to be put in chronological order, okay? And if it's not in chronological order, I mean, don't, don't you just love listening to somebody tell a story? Not that you do it. Our girls were like this, okay? Uh, they got it from somebody. But they, uh, they would tell the story, and as they're telling the story, they would be giving events up there, and then they would back up and give stuff here, and it would be like, I have no idea where you're at in this story of what happened at school. Do you, anybody know people like that? Or are we the only family? Okay. 
and it makes it difficult. So other things, um, the false teachers have been involved with this for a long time. They were, they were in, in these prophecy passages, he talks false teachers. Can false teachers mess up our thinking? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we all have to be careful. Okay, that uh, and First Corinthians 15 is the resurrection passage, and he warns about what you have heard. First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, resurrection passage, rapture passage. He warns about what you have heard. So false teachers were coming in and giving false doctrines. And by the way, are there people around giving different views about whether Jesus is coming back or not? Yeah, today there are. Today there are. Prophecies often came in tidbits or snippets. They didn't come in one volume of the, of the Bible, so it was hard to piece together. Most prophecy dealt with major events. This is, this is where, maybe you don't, this is where I struggle, is I want to know the minutia. I want to know more of the detail. Especially as a Westerner in this world, I want to know the timeline. Okay? Because we're very oriented on when things happen, not just that they happen. We're very time conscious. And so that creates a problem for us. And we want to know details. Especially, especially our generation wants to know details because we can know details. We can know every, what everybody had for breakfast today. Just look on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> right? I, I know I can tell if you're enjoying the service or not if I sat here and looked at Facebook because some people are doing it during the service time, right? We are so, and I'm joking, but the, the next generation is really oriented towards that, okay? And wanting to know everything. And so it makes it hard to say, this is a tough, tough, tough topic. Prophetic events, this is what Ron, you said, this is where I put it in. They're not given in concise package in chronological order. Prophecy passages often include gaps. Let, let's, let's, let's pretend we're Old Testament Jews. Jesus Christ is coming and preaching this week. He's coming to our synagogue today. He's our guest. We're excited. And he gets up and he preaches a message here in our synagogue and he talks about how he's, you know, he alludes to he's the Messiah and he's going to suffer and die. If you're the typical Jew, what have you known about Messiah and the prophecies? He's setting up a kingdom. And when he comes, he's coming in power and glory and going to free us from the IRS, okay? He's going to get rid of them, okay? And he's going to come in power, and we're looking, and we're excited because he's got all the signs of it, and then he says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm go How would most of us respond? Just put yourself back in those sandals. What would be your first thought? He's not the guy. He, he, he didn't get a good night's sleep. He didn't sleep at where? Where do you get the good night's sleep? You're so smart. Okay, Ramada or whatever. I don't know which one it is. Okay, they, whoever advertises it. And something's wrong. And then he keeps on saying this, and you're going to, what, what would most of us start contemplating? Let's find somebody else to be our speaker. Does that make sense? They didn't understand there was a, when it comes to his comings. A first coming and a second coming. And he never told that in the Old Testament. Oh, by the way, I'm coming in, I'm going to be born around 4 to 6 AD. I'm going to die around 28, or BC. I'm going to die around 28. And then I'm going to come back the second time empowering great glory in the year 2000 something or another. He never gave that tidbit. And so they were confused. Now, hey, here's one for you. Okay. When we talk about his second coming, how many phases are there of his second coming? There's two. He's coming in, in the air to meet his saints in the cloud to take them back to heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4. He's coming and not going to be in, meet them in the air, but he's coming to where? The Mount of Olives, and he's going to stay here. Well, which one is it? It's both. Well, how is that possible? It's two phases of the second coming. But we weren't told that, and so that can create confusion for us. Okay? Unless we, and then the way to either, you either have to come to two phases, or you say that, well, we have to start allegorizing the two, one of the two. We have to make it symbolic. And it's not really 
uh, coming to the air, meeting the saints. It's kind of like, and then we have, to, we have to explain it away. And so that makes it really tough. And so, and it's not that we can't understand, but it's tough. That's, all, that's my point. So as to make sure, here's what we need to do, okay? Let's wrap up with this for right now. We need to make sure we understand, we, we approach it this way. We'll take the Bible literally. And, and I just gave you an illustration. We're taking the Bible literally. He is coming in the air, meet his saints in the clouds, and take them to heaven. Taking it literally, we believe what? He's coming to the air, meeting the saints in the cloud, and taking them to heaven. We also believe he is coming from heaven with his army and, by the way, when he comes that time, he's coming alone. This time he's coming with his army, with his angels, with his saints, and they come all the way down to the Mount of Olives and he sets up a kingdom. We're going to take them literally. They're both believable and so we'll have to say, okay, how does this work? Because they're both believable events. When the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. Oh, he's coming and he, in power and great glory, and he's coming to suffer and to die. Well, let's take them before they make sense. He could come then, and he could come then. That means there's two comings. It makes no problem if we just take it at a literal basis. The best commentary on Scripture is the Scripture. So when we're studying end times, let's compare. When we get into this, we'll start next week. We're going to start into the book of Daniel. When you take Daniel 9 and you lay it... Um, uh, I don't know, what, what's, the, what's the word? Um, you just, you, you have something here, like a, a basic design, and then you put more details to it. Oh, an overlay, overlays. Okay, thank you. Somebody, it's going to be a tough time preaching today. You have this overlay, this overlay, this overlay. Then things really kind of fill in. Do you know what I mean? Take Daniel 9. We'll show, I'll try to show it to you next week. Daniel 9, you get a basic idea, and then you put the overlay of Revelation chapters 5 and 6. Apps, oh, and Matthew 24. Uh, wars, rumors of wars, famines. Do you know which passage I'm talking about? This is the beginning of the trouble. You lay those three passages in an overlay, and guess what? There is no contradiction. It is phenomenal how they match up, and it is, it is so simple to do it. But, it. but it's difficult for us. Often, many of us needed somebody to point it out to us just to say, and then it's like, wow, this makes perfect sense. But comparing Scripture with Scripture. Uh, study contextually. That's why I'll give you a prophecy passage that you've got to be careful with. The Matthew passage where he says, two are in the meal, uh, the, the, uh, meal the mill. One is grinding, and they're both grinding, and then all of a sudden one is, and the other is left. Two are in the field. One is taken, one is left. How do most people jump to that passage and say what it is? It's a rapture passage. No, it's not. No, it's not. Contextually, it's not a rapture passage. Contextually, what is he talking about? The second coming when Jesus takes people away to judgment. He takes them away to judgment. Is everything in that context, that's what he's talking about. So be very careful with your text and your passage, okay? You have to know all these little details, what's going on, who said it, that type of thing, why it's being written. This is very important in 1 Corinthians when you're studying the resurrection passage.